Thank you so much, Liz. Um, ours is a world where, at least as far as the media would tell us, the church is declining and the church is dying. So have a look at this picture here from 1890s, looking towards St Paul's Cathedral, if you know London at all. Okay, I'm going to flick on to a more present-day picture. And what do you notice? See, the London skyline in sort of microcosm captures what many think about faith today. We are irrelevant, outdated, a thing of the past, on decline. No longer are churches visible. They are simply large, empty shells that are sold for flats and design projects for Kevin MacLeod. We are overshadowed by tower blocks and offices. We are relics from a previous era. No longer what the church is what the church says credible, but rather an archaic message from yesteryear. See, in the eyes of many, the church has, has gone. It's left the room. And now comes the long, slow, painful, slightly awkward decline which, as you will know if you're a Christian here this evening, makes for some interesting challenges for somebody who's seeking to live for Jesus. Somebody who's not quite comfortable in Oxford in the 21st century. Someone who who ought to feel a bit different. Someone going against the flow. Someone dancing to a slightly different drumbeat. Maybe increasingly so, as more and more and more the West turns its back on Judeo-Christian heritage. What does it mean to live this distinctive life as a believer now. What does that mean today for you, this week at work? What does that mean in five years' time? Because things are changing very, very quickly. What are the challenges now? What will the challenges be in the years to come? And you know, it's a question the Bible asks again and again and again. The people of God are not meant to simply blend in. We're not meant to be the same as everybody else. We're, we're meant to be different from the folk that we rub shoulders with, from those we live amongst. We rub shoulders with them and they see something of, at least they're meant to, something of what God is like. His character, his values, the difference that he makes. And, and so it's a drumbeat as you go through scripture because presumably again and again and again, God's people need reminding of what it means to be different in their context. A different context brings a different challenge, a different tendency. Um, People like us who don't like to rock the boat that much, people who do like to blend in, we need reminding, showing again and again and again. Just take a moment with me, if you will, sort of sweep over the Bible, um, working backwards, thinking beginning or beginning at the end in the New Testament, thinking Jesus writing to the seven churches in Revelation that we looked at about a year ago in these evening meetings. Jesus rallying against churches and contexts where the Christians were just blending in, just looking like everyone else, like those around them. Uh, Rewind a bit further, think Peter, as he writes letters to these scattered, persecuted people, urging them to remain faithful, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, despite all that's going on around you. Remember, this is not all there is, says Peter. There is a hope to come, says Peter. Jesus was raised, says Peter. Live such good lives because you're living for someone else, for for something else. Rewind a bit further, I think Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He says his people are not to be like the Pharisees. That was something of at least the religious context from the day. This pressure to show off publicly in the way that we 
we serve our God, engaging in external acts of righteousness, caring about the outside rather than the inside, trying to impress others rather than having a focus on him. Jesus says, no, 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 live humbly, care about the private, pray when others can't see you, be, as Jesus puts it, be in the world but not of the world, be different. Be immersed and engaged, and in one sense at home here, but in another, very different. This place isn't your home. And if you just think it's a New Testament thing, come all the way back if you can, to just after Egypt, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, the people of God have been rescued through Moses. And you find yourselves being told this. God says to Moses, he says, Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you see, live differently and you will be priests for the world says the Lord. You will be wholly set apart. You will sit somewhere in between me and this world that I've made that is broken. You will be there showing the world what I'm like and representing them to me. Live distinctively, not, not for the sake of it, but as a, as a revelatory act, showing the world what I am like, the difference that it means to follow me, the difference it makes. And so when someone sees you and how you live, they see something of him and whom you belong to and what he's done for you and what he's like. What does it mean to be in this broken, increasingly anti-God world, in it but not of it? What does that look like? Well, I think some of those ideas will be the kind of ideas we get as we work our way through Daniel. This, this, um, this season I think we'll see it's a very contemporary book it's a book for our time it's a book for people like us it's a book for believers away from home trying to think through what it means to be in the world but not of the world if you're not familiar with it let me just try and give you very broad ideas of what's going on um, it's a book that recounts at least in the first half of about as far as chapter 7 the story of Four young men, Daniel with three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they're taken away into exile, initially by the Babylonians. They've come, they destroy God's people, they decimate their cities, they destroy the temple, they take them away. But then this surprises is how they get on away from home. What it means to live in Babylon, in this hostile, alien environment. How they are in the world, but not of the world. What it means to look different. What it means for God to be trusted on, relied upon. He's sovereign even though they seem to have lost pretty much everything. They trust. They're away from home. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been sacked. They're away from family and friends. But they have this trust in him. That's the first half. second half picks up similar themes actually. God in charge, and rather than looking at the micro scale, grassroots, individual stories as you get, chapters 1 to 6, the second half is much more macro, big picture, God is in charge ideas. It's normally the bit that churches duck. Um, 
So we're going to preach it. I think I've roasted myself out actually, so that's quite good. <laughs> but what we'll see in this sort of prophetic and apocalyptic stuff, chapter 7 to the end, to 12, three cycles of persecution against believers, but each time you will see at the end, God is king. The enemy is being judged. His people are awaiting their future kingdom. That's very broad brushstrokes where we're going in Daniel. Let's jump into chapter 1 and try and give, give ourselves a bit of an idea as to how things pan out. He gives us a taster, some themes, some ideas of what's to come. And in a number of ways, then, in chapter 1, we'll see it is a shocking chapter as well. In 1 to 7, I think you see this something like exile and indoctrination. You see, to anyone looking in, if you were to pick up Daniel for the first time and start reading, it looks like the gods of Babylon have won. That's the bottom line, doesn't it? Let me read it again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Do you see God of Israel? Naught. Zero. Nothing. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, won. And the Jews would have been absolutely gutted. Hopeless. God is either unwilling to help or else unable to help. But it's not quite as simple as that. They should have been expecting it. They should have seen it coming. God had already warned them, this was on the cards, if you carry on as you are. Have a listen to one of the other prophets from the time, Jeremiah 22, um, verse 3 to 9. If you want to find it, do. But let me read it for you. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah. You sit on David's throne. You, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a wasteland, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord and have worshipped and served other gods. You see, they've turned their backs on the Lord. And he says, you must turn back to me. Did they listen? No. Did it go well for them? No. And so they were defeated and removed to Babylon. Babylon, not a neutral place. Think Babylon, think the archetypal city against God and against his purposes. Think think Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Pre-promise to Abraham, pre-covenant, people gathering together against God. 
And now his people have wandered off, broken the covenant, and it's as if God has turned back the clock to a time before his covenant, to a time before Abraham, before God's promises, almost as if he never knew them. And it's not just that they've been removed, but actually everything has gone, even the most sacred stuff, verse 2. Do you see, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. God's very glory, his holiness, removed from his temple and put into the temple in Babylon. Almost as if it reflects the superior glory of Nebuchadnezzar. Almost as if God is collected along with these other gods and stuffed into the Babylonian temple with all the plethora of false so-called gods. And from that angle, at about that point, we're meant to feel pretty hopeless. But then in our translations, four little words at the start of verse 2. They change everything. And the Lord delivers. Do you see, that's the surprise from the Jeremiah quote. That's the surprise in Daniel chapter 1. In one sense, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar wins, that the Babylonians are in charge. It's that God, in his sovereign purpose, allows it. More than that, in his sovereignty, he delivers them over, even. It's an extraordinary claim, isn't it? It's that way that again and again and again, through the Bible, you see the both and of God being sovereign and in charge, but then happily slotted alongside that, us people being active and culpable. Think of the cross. Think of wicked people killing the Son of God. Culpability, and yet God sovereign and in charge. And, and our brains don't get it, and we don't like it sometimes, but again and again and again, Scripture just puts them together and says, there you go. I actually wonder if this is something of a comfort, though. Because whatever life might throw at us, whatever's going on, the kind of stuff we don't understand or like or want, we can take comfort that God is sovereign. He is not out of control. Maybe these are words for you now. Maybe you're really up against it. You don't quite know what's going on. You're not sure what he's doing. Maybe you feel something like you're in exile in Babylon. But he is sovereign and he is good and he is in charge and there is a plan. And so trust him. The Babylonian strategy was a really clever one. What they did, verse 3, have a look. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Do you, do you see his strategy? It's very good. He, he creams off the best of the defeated people, probably mid-teens, bringing them into his orbit and then brainwashing them. On the one hand, you remove potential troublemakers from the conquered people, the youthful, idealistic, hopeful ones who might be problems. You, you get rid of them and you bring them to yourself. 
severing them from their people. On the other hand, you gain potentially great leaders. They're young, so presumably they're pliable and teachable. And just imagine, just imagine the jaws of these young men as they drop to the floor when they first approach Babylon, the largest city in the world of its time. A wonder of the world, enormous, about two and a half thousand acres, a mighty metropolis, engineering, architecture, hanging gardens, everything. Jaw to the floor. And he wows them with Babylonian prowess and then seeks to fill their mind with Babylonian truth. Indoctrinating them for three years at the, the Royal University of Babylon or something. But you know, here's the shock for me. At least the big shock as I've been preparing this, or one of them. It's this, it's seeing how far Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego how far they are prepared to go whilst in exile, to get involved in Babylon. There are three big yeses, which kind of make me feel slightly uncomfortable. But I think they're meant to. The first one is education. He's going to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Do you see that? They were prepared to do that. To learn another thought process, pattern, language, framework. Second one is um, they're going to enter the civil service when they finish. They're going to go work for the king. They're going to be a part of his, his workforce, employed by him, and they were prepared to do that as well. And then here is the real biggie. They've changed their names. They are given new names, and they seem to accept that. Verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel... Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And names mean things. You see, where Daniel means, or meant, God is judge, strong name, God is judge, but now his name is Belteshazzar, which probably derives from the goddess Beltis. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but now his name Shadrach probably comes from the name of the moon god in Babylonia. Mishael, means who is like God, but now his name Meshach, which again is linked with the moon god Aku, and Azariah means Yahweh has helped, but now his name is Abednego, which is derived from the Babylonian god Nebo. And so it's as if, it's as if Nebuchadnezzar wants to say to them, do you remember who you belong to now? Remember whose you are now. Almost like these temple treasures. These people are now part of his collection. Loyal to him, his. No longer associated with their God. Now his, his God or his gods. Would you let your name be changed? That they are thoroughly in the world, aren't they? I think one of our dangers can be so easily we seek to sort of distance ourselves from from everything and everyone too much. We keep them all at arm's length lest we're contaminated in some way. Now, of course, there is a different context here. We might say they had little choice about their situation. I don't say they did have a choice. They could have chosen to say no and probably to die. Later on in the book, we'll see they're not prepared to go along with stuff. They're not prepared to, to pray to the king. They dig their hills in and they say no. They won't dance to the king's drumbeat there. 
But here they are prepared to get stuck in, to be a part of the system. What does it mean for us? It means like the Jesus whom we follow, the one who perfectly was in the world but not of the world, the one who was the true exile from home in one sense, I think it means we genuinely get involved in the world around us. This was something of why Daniel was writing to people in exile. We learn to understand and engage with the world view of our time. We, we get involved, we get hands dirty, we love in a costly way. We're, we're there among it all. I have to say, I'm always hugely encouraged, around about this time of year, by talking to New folk in Oxford who are prepared to get stuck in in different ways, their priority is to go find a club or a society or something to get involved in because they know their tendency towards isolation. They know what it means to be disengaged and distant and they want to not have that. They want to go make friends. They want to go and get involved in some way. And what we'll see as the book unfolds is in the extraordinary way that you see something like Joseph or Esther or Nehemiah God raises someone up for such a time as this, perhaps. Someone in the world, but not of the world. Because there are three yeses from Daniel and his friends. The yes to education, the yes to work, the yes to the name change. But there's a no as well. Lest we think they're compromising, lest we think they are finding the allure of Babylon and royalty and all its finery and it's kind of sucked them in like freshers who have an awful first week. They've lost their distinctiveness. No, no, no. No, he was prepared to rock the boat. He was prepared to be different. And so we see secondly in 8 to 21 something of distinction and blessing. What does he say no to? He says no to the food. Why does he say no to the food and the wine? No one's quite sure why. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. It, it seems to be to do with allegiance. Maybe the food he eats, the, the drink that he drinks, that they consume, that become a part of him, show something of whom they belong to, some, something of whom they're prepared to have kind of table fellowship with in some sense. They can change their address, they can learn all kinds of things in different languages, they can get new jobs, they can have their names changed even, but they don't belong to Babylon. They don't belong to the gods of Babylon or to Nebuchadnezzar. Their final allegiance lies elsewhere, and this is a way of showing that. How does it show that? Well, it, the books, the commentaries come up with kind of two main options as to quite why food and wine are um, the thing to make the stand on. The first one is possibly to do with pagan idolatry. That is, that is maybe, maybe the, the meat and the wine have been involved in some way in sacrifices to Babylonian idols. Maybe that's what's going on, people say. And so to keep themselves pure, to, to show they belong to the true gods, they won't eat meat or wine that has connotations with false gods. Similar arguments and stuff going on in 1 Corinthians, if you know that letter. So maybe that's what's going on. The second possibility, that I think is the strongest argument probably, maybe overlapping with the first one is this, and that is that it is, if you notice in 8, it is the, 
the royal food and wine. That is, it's to do with it being the king's. It's less about gods and false gods and more about Nebuchadnezzar. It's them saying, you don't own us. We, we won't enjoy your food in that way. Here is our line in the sand to show whom we belong to, to show where our allegiance is. We're not the same as everyone else. Yes, yeah, we're compliant, we're willing, we're, but we're not willing to do all that you say. We have principles. We don't belong to you. And so verse 9 then, they set up this test. And the royal official comes and chats to them. The test is they're going to have water and vegetables instead of meat and wine. And after ten days, they're to see how they look and how healthy they are and how it's going. And, and then 15 to 20, you see both in the, in the short term and then in the long term, you see God is with them. And so this works out well. Look at 15, at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And then 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of uh, literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Wait for later in the book for that. And then at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the king talked with them and he found none equal to them. Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better. So God is with them and God blesses them as they make this stand. They, they drew the line, they made sure people knew whom they belonged to and that they would not compromise, that they were, they were in the world but not of the world. I think that is a tricky balance when push comes to shove on a Monday morning. So translate it for me. What does it mean for you in your context to, to not eat the royal meat and wine? What does that look like for you? What does it mean to be distinct? Where is this line that you draw? What does that look like in your workplace? In your family? In your sports team? Or on your street? Or, or with your neighbours? Whatever it might be. Where are there expectations that people have for you to conform Things that we're asked to do, maybe things that we're to believe, things that we need to, to cling on to if we're going to progress or, or to flourish in our, our workplace or our industry. Are there worldviews? Are there many gods that we need to worship that must be bowed down to? What does it mean for you to not eat the royal meat and wine? Where do we blend in? Maybe that's some homework this week. Something to think and to pray about. Something to chat to each other about. I've listened to this from John Lennox. He is a professor of maths at Oxford. And he's speaking about the world of science. I found this really interesting. He said this. <clears throat> he said, I can well remember when this was first brought home to me. There was one occasion while I was a student when I found myself at a dinner seated beside a Nobel laureate. I tried as best I knew at the time to engage him in a discussion about the reality of God. After dinner he invited me together with some of his professional colleagues to his room for coffee. 
I was the only student present and the atmosphere was intimidating to say the least. When we were more or less settled, less in my case, he asked me whether or not I should like to make a serious career in science. Yes, sir, I replied. Then give up these childish ideas of God, he said. They will only disadvantage you intellectually among your peers. It was a defining moment. I asked him what he had to offer as a rational explanation for the universe and its laws, as an alternative to God. He surprised me then by trying to explain that some kind of life force was responsible. I thought that such thinking was dead. I tried to gently point out that this appeared to me much less rational than what I already believed. I was dismissed. He finishes, the pressure is mounting today if you're going to look good from the point of view of many scientists and those who follow them that you had better be an atheist. Maybe take some time this week to think what it means for you in your context, in your world, to not eat the royal meat and the wine. Where, does, where are you expected to bow the knee? Daniel and his friends seems to me, and I think this is why, this is why Daniel writes it to a people in exile, they are in the world engaged, involved, knee-deep, but not of the world. Different, distinctive. And the Lord blesses them as they do that. So in the short term, they get the blessing from health. Later on, you get the abilities and the aptitude. And then after three years, they kind of graduate top of the, uh, top of the class, off the scale. We need to say, just as we finish, that God won't necessarily bless us in this way if we are distinct and faithful. If we are in the world but not of the world, we may not be given the job of Prime Minister, which is kind of where Daniel ends up. In fact, of course, the the person who who got it perfectly right, who got this in the world but not of the world thing perfect, ended up dead. Jesus drew criticism because he was so inclusive, because he hung out with all kinds of people as we saw this morning, the tax collectors and the sinners and the parties and the stuff going on, people who were considered to be shameful. He, he was involved in them. He was not distant. His hands were dirty. He was prepared to love in a costly and messy way. But then he was still distinct and different and, and prepared to, to challenge and beautifully, perfectly holy and, and not willing to compromise. Which led to him dying on a cross and then being raised up in glory. So here's the thing, it may be, it may not be that in the here and now, like Daniel and his friends, we, we find people admiring our distinctive living. It may be that they sneer at us or laugh at us, they don't appreciate it. But I take it we can be confident like Jesus, finally, we will be blessed for distinctive living. Because God sees. God sees whom we belong to. God sees that we have eyes fixed on him and we are in the world, but not of it. Distinctive in exile. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we we confess to you, we find this hard. 
we find it hard to, to genuinely know what it means to to be in the world to be involved to, to be prepared to, to partake and to live and yet still to be different to be distinctive Father in heaven be at work in us please we recognise it's messy we recognise it's complicated and there aren't necessarily easy answers but guard us from either extreme guard us please from so withdrawing that, that we don't know anybody or, or are part of the world that you love the world that you love and you sent your son to die for but guard us too from the other extreme of being simply the same as everyone else just blending in because it's easier pray for each of us in that room that you would give us time this week to think and to pray through what that really means what that actually looks like what the the cash value of that is that we might know what it means to be in the world but not of the world. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.